we will consider the second part of our sermon that we began last week on baptism, which was the first, the first time in uh, 11 years in the history of our church that I've preached a sermon exclusively on baptism. And uh, I'm glad you came back for more today because there is more to say. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. Where Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, and heirs according to the promise. Amen. Well, some have called it the worst, and some have called it the best wedding proposal they have ever heard. I'll leave it with you to decide. The expiring groom's name is Alexei Baikov. At the time, a 30-year-old Russian with a flair for the dramatic. When he decided to propose to his girlfriend, Irana, he opted for not the mundane, but the memorable. He set it up along the road that he knew his girlfriend would be driving on her way home. He hired a professional makeup artist to make it seem real. As she pulled up that afternoon, she rolled up upon what she encountered to be a horrible, horrible vehicle accident. The vehicle was crushed, a vehicle identical to Alexi, her boyfriend. And there, laying on the side of the road in a very unnatural and mangled body position, was Alexi, as if he were dead, blood all over his face and neck and dripping out of his mouth. Ambulances were already saved on site. As Irana approached, she was met by a paramedic who informed her that Alexi, her boyfriend, had died on impact. Irana ran up and knelt down to hold Alexi close as she began to cry. And that was just the reaction after all that Alexi was hoping for. He said that proved to him that she loved him after all. Just at that moment, Alexi seemed to rise from the dead, got down on one knee and pulled out of his pocket with the blood still on his face and dripping down his cheeks and asked Irana to be his wife. What would you have done, ladies, if that were you? Irana told everybody that this time she almost killed him, quote, for real. But in the end, accepted his proposal, and the two were later... Now, Alexi is either very daring or very stupid, or maybe some combination of both. But we in the church share a story that, believe it or not, is kind of comparable to that. For Jesus, the bridegroom of his church, has an engagement ring of sorts that he offers to his bride after having been mangled and bloodied, and bruised, and beaten, and crucified with nails, and run through with the spear. After really having died, Jesus rose from the dead, and he comes to his bride, the church, and he proposes marriage to her. And 
that engagement means. That engagement means that you can talk to them. It's what the Bible calls baptism. It's that subject that we began, of course, to consider last week and consider discussing discussing today. I mentioned last time, but it bears reminding that this passage isn't exclusively about water baptism, but spirit baptism or salvation. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, that's one way to phrase salvation, being saved, being baptized into Christ. And yet, the concept and idea of baptism is there because baptism is a real picture of salvation. One is the sign and one is the thing signified. One points to the other. As water washes a body, so the blood of Jesus Christ washes a soul. And our focus last time was on mode from verse number 27. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That speaks to what we call the mode, how baptism is administered. Infusion, applying water to the person, or immersion, applying water to the person. And hopefully we may convince Presbyterians of you last time. If we didn't, that's okay, but hopefully we did regarding the mode. But today we turn to focus on what is probably even more of a controversial subject than mode, and that is what we call recipients of baptism. If mode speaks to how we baptize, recipients speak to whom we baptize. Consider how verse number 28 then opens the door for a discussion on the recipients of baptism. Paul tells us in baptism and ultimately in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now right up front, let me tell you what this verse does not mean, but it's been misinterpreted to mean from Paul's words. No Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, no male nor female. Therefore, Marxism. Therefore, communism. There's no such difference in the church and Christianity between boys and girls, between people who own businesses in our context and people who work for them. And, and there is no difference between things that make one uniquely identified with their race, whether Jew or Gentile. That erases all of those, and so all such distinctions should be taken away. That is not what Paul is touching on. It is the same. Paul, who lines out gender distinctions, for example, in the book of Ephesians, and who tells us how husbands are to love wives and wives are to love husbands, this same Paul. Rather, what he means in this context is in the church, these kinds of dividing barriers of distinctions and how we ought to treat each other in the church are washed away, as it were, by our baptism. God forbid that any person who has more money ever look down on anybody who has less money in the church of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because you've all been baptized and you all bear the same name, and that is Christian. If you're rich, or if you're not so 
servants today. Is God your father? Then if somebody doesn't have enough, as much money as you might have, is your brother, is your sister. God forbid that we should ever withdraw or separate ourselves or look down upon someone who is different in us, in our gender, or in our social standing, or in our racial profile. In the church of Jesus Christ, Paul says, doesn't he, you are all one. But just like with the mode, when it comes to recipients of baptism, getting back to the subject, Christians down through the centuries have debated on who should be baptized and why. Who should be baptized and why? On the one hand, of course, there is what is called the credo-baptist position. Credo-baptist, and on the other hand, there is the paedo-baptist position. Now don't worry. Even if those phrases are new to you, their concepts probably aren't. The credo-baptist position is derived from a Latin term, credo, which means I believe. Credo-Baptist is an I-believe-Baptist. It is someone who asserts that no one should be baptized unless and until they confess, I believe. Until they make, that is their public profession of faith. And that's why it's sometimes called believer's baptism. The Paedo-Baptist disagrees. And assert that not only, not only should those who say, I believe, be baptized, if they never have been baptized before, but upon their profession of faith, their children, Pado, from which we derive speak of baptism, their children should receive baptism as well. So you have the credo Baptist position that says only believers or professing believers should be baptized, and you have a Pado Baptist position that says, those who profess faith and their children, their pedos, should be baptized. So what I want to do is examine the believer's baptism arguments and then propose the reform view, which is cards on the table, the pedo-baptist position. But our Baptist brothers and sisters do oftentimes have very well-articulated arguments that we need to address. And one common contention, probably the most common contention regarding pedo-baptism is that nowhere in Scripture do you find the positive command to baptize your youngins, which is true. Nowhere will you ever find a command on the pages of Scripture, thou shalt baptize thy baby, or thou shalt sprinkle thy children. If we did, it'd be nice, but there'd be no debate around this subject. But on the other hand, it is important to remember, nor do we have a prohibition that says thou shalt not baptize thy children. And I say that to hopefully establish a front of critical principle in this discussion, and that is whether you're a credo-baptist or whether you are a paedo-baptist, both sides are making their case not from clear experience passages, but from what we call inference in Scripture. Inference. And that's important because inference is an interpretive principle of Scripture whereby we arrive at doctrinal and practical 
doctrine of the Trinity. The Christian doctrine of God is formulated not by explicit statement, but by inference regarding all that is revealed about God in the Bible. We would all hopefully see the problem with denying that God is one in essence, three in person. There is one God, and this one God is revealed in three persons. And each person of the Trinity is equal in power and glory, and yet distinguishable from one another. That is, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. Three distinct and distinguishable persons within the Godhead, and yet one God. One God, three persons, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. Nowhere do you find that explicitly stated in Scripture. But when you bring together everything the Bible shows you about who God is, by inference, a very clear picture emerges as to what we ought to believe about God. And just in the same way, neither the Credo Baptist position nor the Reformed position have a single verse or command that either enjoins or prohibits who specifically to baptize. That is, you can find a verse that says, baptize these people only, and don't baptize these people only. The question and the debate really circles around this issue. How do we arrive at a proper, consistent, biblical conclusion regarding who we are and who we are not baptized? And when we take in everything that the Bible reveals to us, I think it's clear picture emerges that hopefully I can paint for you in the next very few moments. Vital in context, the book of Galatians is the doctrine of circumcision. Recall how the false teachers were telling believers in the church of Galatia, you must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And what Paul does really in so many words in verses 27 and 28 is tell them one more good reason or argument why they did not need to be circumcised as New Covenant believers. Not only did it not convert you or not justify you, but now in this context, he or she who has been baptized outwardly is as good as having been circumcised outwardly. And a point, a principle that is pointed up regarding baptism as distinct from circumcision is that the sign of baptism under the new covenant is not more restrictive but more expansive. Now you might not be tracking with me right now but you need to get a hold of what he says in verse number 28. Regarding baptism there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Under the Old Testament, circumcision was reserved for very specific parties. I ain't no biology teacher, but I can tell you I don't think many girls got circumcised in the Old Testament. And no Gentiles were able to be circumcised as long as they identified as Gentiles. They had to identify as Jews. Then, of course, they can be incorporated into the covenant by circumcision, but not until. And Paul brings out a point that baptism evidence. 
but a more expansive and the reason I say this is because from a credo Baptist perspective, in comparing baptism with circumcision, baptism becomes more restrictive than circumcision, in that it's only to be administered to those who profess faith no longer their children. In the case of circumcision, from Genesis 17, it was not only those who profess faith in the living God. But in Ishmael's case, the 14-year-old boy, and in Isaac's case, the 8-year-old boy. And this connection between circumcision and baptism is established by Paul, not only in Galatians 3, but in Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, where he says, In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, being buried together with him in baptism. That is, what circumcision was in the Old Testament, baptism is in the New Testament. Only, it's no longer restricted to little boys, but now boys and girls, male and female, Jew and Gentile, bond and free. And this is why this understanding of children being into God's promised covenant. Why? That when you read of baptism in the book of Acts, when Lydia gets converted to the Lord, she's the one who parts the Lord open. And Lydia is baptized, and her household is baptized. Not only is the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, when he comes to faith in Christ, not only is he baptized, but his whole household is baptized. And the inference there specifically is on his faith. The pronoun is singular. They rejoice that he had believed and the entire household was converted and baptized. And it's also why Paul calls the children of believers in 1 Corinthians 7 holy offspring. <coughs>
baptism and believe in baptism. But the also consistent rule as well is believers in the system circumcision in the old believers in the system baptism in the new And it has been stated before as well that once they be signed infants almost certainly being baptized is first Corinthians 10. Paul says that Israel sought to prevent the entire nation men, women, boys, and girls they were all baptized in the boat in the clouds and in the sea. And if you read Moms 
teenagers, do you know how blessed you are if you've got a mom and or a dad who loves you enough to bring you to church, to set you under the word of God, to bring you into the place where you can hear the truth of the gospel of the Savior who loves not just your father and mother, but who claims you. And if you have been baptized, listen, Jesus has given you the engagement ring. But listen to me as well. Whether you're a teenager or adult here today, listen to me. As long as you've only got the engagement ring on, you're not married. Until you say, I do, and put the wedding ring on, you are not really married. See, the engagement ring, your groom or your fiancé is just saying to you, I want you to be mine. But when you say, I do, and you put on that wedding ring, you say, I want to be yours as well. And so it is in the church. If you've been baptized, God has offered to you eternal life and cleansing of sin and salvation. He's given you the visible engagement ring to put on your hand. You're in my church. I will have you to deny. He comes to the Lord and focuses on you. When many of you as were baptized, not into the church, as wonderful and important as that is, but baptized into Christ. That's what I want you to do. And let's consider finally the symbols of the recipient of believers or professing believers in the tomb. What does baptism actually symbolize? And I think we can touch on this in verse number 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. I gotta admit, um, I don't listen to much modern country music. I don't, uh, find it nearly as good as the old country music. I get a witness, I don't know, I'm not <laughs> But it just doesn't seem as good as it used to be, and maybe that's why I'm just getting older. You think everything, when you get older, everything's back to your days automatically. But there is one country song that sort of stirred my attention a little bit, the language of it, and it's a song by Carrie Underwood. And it's called There Must Be Something in the Water. I don't know if you ever heard it or not. There must be something in the water. And she's talking about her professed faith. I don't know. She's very underwood, obviously. I don't know. She's a true believer in Jesus Christ. I don't know if she's really been born again or not. Um, I don't know really a whole lot about it. But in the song, at least she's talking, I think, about her own faith, what she would call faith, and associating it somehow with baptism and talking about it our lives have changed, and, and the real punchline of the song is, there must be something in the water. Um, almost, and I've not done real deep exegesis on the lyrics of this song, okay, but just take it at face value, it sounds like to me, Carrie Underwood believes there must have been something magic in that water that made me different than I was before, that, that changed my life. So I received the water, and something was in the water, because I'm different than I used to be. And I want to say, no, there ain't nothing in the water. There ain't nothing in the 
Yeah. 